listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the beautiful third floor of the Brewster Building. No, it's not the least bit beautiful. From the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not representing the university, speaking only for myself as my guest will speak only for himself as we always do here legally and according to the law on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, the building is not beautiful. No one would, would ever accuse it of that here. But the evening is. It's April, first uh, show in April 2022. And it's balmy and warm. Baseball season is on. They're playing baseball right now at Clark LeClaire Stadium just down the road here. ECU against Old Dominion. I've resisted turning it on in the corner of my screen in order to give uh, our topic tonight my full attention. And uh, so I don't know what how they're doing, but what a night to be out uh, in the bleachers there. It's the end of basketball, of course, we saw last week with the NCAA tournament. Congratulations to Kansas on winning it all. But what a game in the semifinals between UNC and Duke. I tease my friends at Duke on this show uh, occasionally, but that was... Uh, just a barn burner of a game. It was. I, I was genuinely sorry one team had to lose that game, uh, and I was glad the team that won it was uh, was UNC Chapel Hill, as opposed to UNC Greenville, which is where I'm sitting now. It's not. That's not really the name of the school. Uh, and indeed, there was an attempt at one point when East Carolina University became part of the UNC system. Uh, to call it UNC Greenville, just like there's a UNC Greensboro, UNC Wilmington, UNC Charlotte, and so on. But East Carolina University has its own proud history, its own chip on its shoulder, and wanted no part of that. So we are still named after a state that does not exist, uh, East Carolina. We're in North Carolina. Don't don't fly to Greenville, South Carolina, if you come to visit. Um, if you are coming here to go to school, uh, you can do that now without even having to visit too often. I mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we've already started to get uh, some applications from listeners for uh, East Carolina University's master's program in history. We now offer enough courses that it is possible to take uh, to get uh, pretty much the whole degree online. It's not, we're not uh, an online diploma mill, we're a real school, and it's not an all online program. We haven't designed it that way. Uh, we do offer courses face-to-face, and we hope if you are interested in getting such a degree, you would consider taking one or two courses uh, in person, if you possibly could. But if not, there, there, are, there are ways to piece it together to get the whole degree online, and uh, if you're interested then in studying civil war, you'd be writing a thesis. I imagine uh, in all likelihood I'd end up being the advisor for that. So if you're serious and uh, and qualified, uh, go ahead and apply. Uh, just go to ecu.edu online, look it up, how to do that. And that's uh, after that, it's out of my hands. I don't control admissions or I'm no longer sitting on the department's admissions committee. I did that for many years and enjoyed it, but I rotated off this year. So if you don't get admitted, uh, I hope you'll still listen to the show, but that will be the decision of my, my colleagues. But hopefully uh, hopefully some of you will. It'll be fun. It'll also be fun to see some of you, uh, I hope, traveling this summer with this hallowed ground, uh, the tour uh, put on by the uh, Stephen Ambrose historical tours. Uh, there are two of them in the spring, which at least one is sold out. I think they may both be at this point. Uh, there will be more in the fall, but they're always fun. And with the weather the way it is and reading a book about uh, a battle with excellent instructions on how to tour the battlefield, we'll be talking about those in a few minutes tonight, really has me in the mood to get back out on the battlefield. 
and also has me in the mood to talk more about the Civil War with other people, which we'll be doing next week uh, with Ernest Dollar from the uh, North Carolina Museum of History and discussing his book, Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina. We'll come back on April 20th with Gene Eric Salaker and his new book on the uh, Sultana disaster. He wrote another book about it 30 years ago. This is an updated version. I, I didn't read the first one, but I'm anxious to read this one. And on the 27th of April, Tim Talbot, old friend of the show, will be here to talk about his work with the Battle of New Market Heights Memorial and Education Association. New Market Heights is a battle like, like Cedar Mountain that people don't know enough about, and Tim will be cluing us in on that. On April, on May 4th, uh, Vincent L. Burns and his new book, Voices of the Army of the Potomac, will be our subject. And then it's time to go touring for a couple weeks. I'll tell you more as we get there. Uh, if you can't go touring, you can experience the sensation of having me around, well, by wearing a Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt, which actually doesn't help. It does not have my picture. It has a picture of William Tecumseh Sherman and his uh, listening to Civil War Talk Radio in response to uh, a tepid demand for merchandise, I went ahead and uh, partnered with an organization that does that. So you can now go to impedimentsofwar.org, the website. Mark Gaffney keeps that up to date. Find out who's going to be on next. And click on the link there to buy your t-shirts, your mugs, your refrigerator magnets, uh, everything you need. If you're going to get an MA degree at ECU, be well-dressed in your Civil War talk radio uh, get-up, and, uh, and, and that will... I don't know what that will do for you. Uh, so let's move on and talk about the Battle of Cedar Mountain, August 9, 1862. The author of the book is Michael E. Block. Uh, Michael, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. Good evening. Good evening, Mike. Glad glad to have you here. We're, we're communicating on Skype the way modern people do, as opposed to the old-fashioned telephone. And this is the first of, uh, after two weeks of struggling trying to get Skype to work, you would think I'd know it after 18 years, how to make Skype work flawlessly. Well, we haven't used it all 18 years. Uh, but I'm happy to say tonight it worked. It's working flawlessly. You, you did everything you needed to do, and somehow I did also. So here we are connected. Um, the this book this is your your first uh book about civil war writing is that correct it's, yes it is it's my first book oh and and who's who's our guest in the background uh that our, our guests are julian sterling who uh saw a bird i think ah very good well that that certainly merits their their commentary and it's right always welcome um we uh, we had a brush with dog this past week, and uh, my wife was visiting our daughter in Asheville, and there was a standard poodle available from a rescue organization there, and our two standard poodles are, are long gone now, and we miss them, and we've been thinking about getting another one, and we almost pulled the trigger this time. Um, so when I hear the dog bark, uh, it, it, it's a welcome sound. The uh, Battle of Cedar Mountain, uh, I'm looking at the, the back of the book, uh, you have been involved with, uh, while this is the first book and, and it has just come out, you've been involved with Cedar Mountain for some time uh, through the Friends of Cedar Mountain Battlefield, for example. Let's start with the basics. Where is Cedar Mountain? Cedar Mountain is in Culpeper County, Virginia, which is pretty much dead center of Virginia, looking at it on a map. And in the battlefield itself is about eight miles south of the town of Culpeper on Route 15 on, on the journey through Hollowed Ground Highway. So it's right there in the middle. I, I said in the beginning, in the introduction, that this battle takes place after the Peninsula Campaign in uh, the spring of 1862, before the Second Bull Run Campaign. You argue in this book that Really, it's it, it, it's often portrayed as the opening battle between Pope and the Confederate forces that, that make up the Second Manassas Campaign. But you say we really should think of this more as the the end of the Peninsula Campaign. How how do you see it that way? Well, when I started re when I started learning about Cedar Mountain after I joined the the Friends Group, the more I read, the more I realized that this really had nothing to do with the Second Manassas Campaign. Um, 
Lee doesn't move to begin to move north out of out of Richmond until August 13th, which is or 14th, which is five days after the battle. If you think about what Jackson did in the Valley Campaign of 1862, he's he's replicating that to an effect. Uh, Lee has pushed McClellan back onto uh, onto Harrison's Landing after the Seven Days Campaign, and just as he gets that done, he has an army of 40,000 men gathering in the uh, Northern Virginia Piedmont. And what and what Lee will do is send Jackson first to Louisa Courthouse and then the Gordonsville and then up to uh, up to Culpeper again to, to do exactly what he did in the valley. And that is to distract these 40,000 guys and keep and keep the, the uh, critical rail junction at Gordonsville uh, open to the Confederacy because that's where they're getting their their supplies from from the valley. And it's also protecting Lee's back door. Lee does not need to have. Uh, an army east of Richmond and, and approaching from west of Richmond. So what Jackson does in July and August is is what he did in, in the Valley. And that's just distract an army and give Lee time to, to solve solve the problems in his front. And the army that, that Jackson defeats in the Valley campaign, it's not a single army. It's the disjointed forces. you got Shields and Banks and McDowell all, all running around. It's, it's it's the, the same th- crew exactly exactly yeah this is the same crew who who is Pope's army? Pope's army is made up of uh, three three armies under Nathaniel Banks, uh, Franz Siegel, and Erwin McDowell. All three who have faced and lost to Stonewall Jackson uh, in the past. Siegel's Siegel's corps is the former corps under John C. Fremont, and when Pope took command. Uh, Fremont couldn't work with that man, so uh, he uh, he resigned his commission and and really never to be seen again during the war. Siegel takes over, so it's it's the same it's the same three armies that Jackson has faced in the past, and now they're under under the command of John Pope. And you also make the point that that Jackson is fighting this independently at, as he did in the Valley when he commands the Army of the Valley. Uh, this isn't what he was doing in the seven days acting in conjunction with Lee's forces this is him on his own exactly uh jackson jackson's command is is an independent command independent from lee until until mid-august when lee joins him and and longstreet together in uh, in gordonsville so this is jackson uh, on his own working in close collaboration with robert e lee something that the federal armies just never seemed to learn how to do now it's interesting that you know we think of Stonewall Jackson as the 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 military mastermind who puts together the attack at Chancellorsville uh, or conducts the Valley Campaign, but this is right after his really unsuccessful venture in the Seven Days Battles. So, I, at the time, did did Lee did the South generally have confidence that Jackson could handle this mission? I, I gotta believe they did because the choice was the choice was Jackson or Longstreet, mm-hmm. and and Jackson had demonstrated independent activity in the past with the Valley and and his actions in 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 the December in December the, the fall of sixty one. So I think Lee had confidence in him to to set him loose again to to uh, to watch his back door. Jackson and and Longstreet, well, well, Jackson doesn't get along especially well with anybody in the army except Lee, I guess. No, he doesn't. Uh, and Jeb Stewart. Uh, and Jeb Stewart, he, they, they they manage. Uh, you, you write in the book about the various fractures within the army of, of Northern Virginia Hill and Longstreet, uh, and then then Jackson and his subordinates. Uh, this is the time when. Uh, Richard Garner is being court-martialed over what happened at Kernstown, so you've got that uh, business going on. Did Garner participate in this campaign? I- he did not. He did not participate at all. He had a cousin that did. Uh, uh, Thomas, I think, was his first name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, he did not participate in this campaign. Lee, Lee is Lee is really being challenged at this time, uh, strategically and operationally, between between the infighting within the command. Uh, he's dealing with with movement of all the of all the federal armies, and then he's dealing with the high level politics of of John Pope and the Washington uh, government changing the way the war is going to be fought. So Lee's juggling a lot of a lot of balls in July and August, eighteen sixty two. 
Well, that, that's a very important point to the campaign, the orders under which Pope is operating. We're going to take a short break, and we'll come back on just that point. Okay. Uh, we're talking tonight with Michael E. Block, author of The Carnage Was Fearful, The Battle of Cedar Mountain, August 9, 1862. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Michael E. Block, author of The Carnage Was Fearful, The Battle of Cedar Mountain, August 9, 1862. We've been talking about the uh, the campaign, uh, Pope's forces in Central Virginia, and uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, also in Central Virginia, in July, early August, 1862. And Mike, one of the points you you made as we went to the break was that General Pope is operating under a new set of orders designed to make uh, war. Uh, more painful, really, for uh, for Southern civilians who are supporting the rebellion, something that, that George McCollin had resisted doing on the peninsula. Now Pope's going to do it. What what are these orders, and why are they so uh, offensive to uh, to the Confederates? Well, there, there's he sets out a series of orders. There's three really critical ones. Uh, one of them was the first one was to, that the army was going to assist off the land, so we we're going to take food from the mouths and the uh, and the barns of of the southerners that they're passing through. The second one was dealing with guerrillas in the region, and uh, and that one basically said that if something happens to the Union forces based on a guerrilla attack, uh, local civilians are going to be turned out to repair any damage or be responsible for any kind of uh, costs. That are inflicted uh, from those, and finally, the most the most egregious one in the Confederacy's eyes was that uh, officers in the Army of Virginia, which is Pope's army, were to arrest all disloyal male citizens within their lines or within their reach. So, in other words, if you didn't take if you didn't take the uh, oath of allegiance, uh, you could be uh, sent sent from your house. Uh, arrested or or even you know or sent beyond beyond uh, the lines, uh, and if you were caught back again, you could be summarily executed. Uh, this is a, a a completely different way of prosecuting the war compared to how the Army of the Potomac was fighting it down on the peninsula, and it's frankly one that Lincoln wished to wished to he wanted to change the way the war was fought, and this is this is one of the ways he he was going to do this. Pope is a Republican. Uh, came on came on the uh, inauguration train with Lincoln from Illinois, and when he served in Missouri prior to, to coming to the East, 
he he had similar problems with gorillas, and he and he uh, instituted these same kind of policies. But now, but now that you're on center stage in Virginia, uh, the, these uh, policies are, are highlighted, and the Confederates uh, react uh, vehemently against something. Uh, these these new these new uh, ways of fighting a war to the point where to the point where uh, any Union officers from the Army of the Virginia that are captured are going to be treated like common criminals and not prisoners and indeed they are after the Battle of Cedar Mountain there's probably uh, close to 50 or more officers captured and they are they are literally thrown in irons in city jails in Richmond. I mean, the the rules, you know, Pope's policies don't sound all that uh, uh, stringent, I guess, we're in the context of the the horrifying things that are happening to civilians in in Ukraine today uh, in a modern war. And uh, you you quote Lincoln observing, says the South can't play at rebellion for 10 years, then they lose, they get everything back the way they started, nothing nothing lost. Uh, If if they want to if, if this is what they want to do, then they're going to have to to pay the price for it. And uh, yet, the uh, uh, I, I guess the threat to to imprison they do in fact, as, as you say, they imprison these these officers. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Lorian Foot was on this show discussing her book Rights of Retaliation, and this was the first example she gave where okay. the uh, the uh, this. The North says they're going to do something. The South says we will retaliate in this fashion. If you don't do that, uh, if if you do that, and 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 she says it's almost ritualized to go back and forth, and and that that's how it's done. And uh, it's just interesting how this has come up uh, week after week. I don't select the books looking for a theme, but these these topics somehow resonate with modern things that are happening and, and we, we end up discussing them. So, so yeah, I, I found a fascinating yeah. letter buried in the OR mm-hmm. written by some prisoners from the Army of the Potomac after Second Manassas when they had fought under Pope, mm-hmm. claiming that they're in Richmond and they're writing to the Confederate government saying, hey, yeah, we're officers and we fought in this battle, but we're not part of the Pope's army. We don't want to be treated like Pope's officers are. So they want to be treated like regular prisoners. So it's a really fascinating story that really hasn't been told. So, so they're they're disassociating themselves with their fellow soldiers uh, because they're in a different field army. Exactly. Uh, it, it is fascinating. I mean, you, you also cite John Mitsui's book, uh, The First Republican Army, w- which analyzes the uh, uh, the Army of Virginia, Pope's Army of Virginia. And, and there's just so much interesting research going on on all these topics that, that uh, whenever someone says, you know, civil war, don't we already know everything about it? Uh, oh, man, we are not close. There's something uh, new you, you really do. Uh I'm going to jump to the end. So I learned something new every day from this book. Uh, Good. Uh, jump to the very end of the battle, and well, of course we're going to discuss the whole thing. But uh, you, the battle ends with a nighttime artillery duel, and one of the results is some horses, battery horses, are killed. That happens in, in war. But you report that this was the first time uh, photographs of dead horses appeared in. Uh, for public display, how did you find that out? Where did you see that? It's it's just it's just following the trail of the Civil War photographers. Uh-huh. Uh, they 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 took photos post post first bull run and and throughout the winter there, then down on the peninsula. But this is the first time that, in this case, Timothy O'Sullivan made it out to a battlefield in time to see something dead before it got buried or burned. And so he was king. The the spot where this happened is about four miles from four miles from Culpeper. So he he was riding out from Culpeper probably the 11th or 12th of August. And this is the first thing he came upon. The first thing he saw on the battlefield was was uh, was was John Pegram's or Willie Pegram's uh, horses. Wow. Well, it it you know something you don't think about, uh, but it is true we don't see large numbers of photos of dead horses, and in some ways they're. Uh, they're more affecting in the the innocence of beasts than the the photographs of dead people. Um, the uh, let's get back to the campaign. Sure. So so Lee's 
Lee is defending, as you say, the back door to Richmond, his, his connection to the uh, Shenandoah Valley, and, and Pope wants to break that connection and, and sends Banks Corps uh, in the lead to do it. There's some initial skirmishing. There's a third enemy in this campaign that comes up again and again, and that is the environment. Oh, yes. It's so hot. It, 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 it temperature is probably easily in the 90s and is and is so for days before and after the battle. It, it is it is so bad. It's so bad that the uh, 27th Indiana, I think, in their regimental history, talk about uh, they marched at night, mm-hmm. the night of August 7, 8, to, because it was too hot to march in the day. But as they're marching, they're kicking up dust and they're breathing it in and they can't even see that they're breathing it in. So it's it's just horrendous conditions. A soldier in the 21st Virginia marched to the battlefield, got to the battlefield and collapsed from sunstroke and spent and spent the battle passed out. Mm. It, it, it really is. Uh, it, and you described there are casualties throughout the battle from from sunstroke, from heat stroke that that. Uh, uh, these guys really suffer. I thought it was interesting, uh, getting back to Stonewall Jackson, how his approach to the battlefield you describe as a, a self-inflicted debacle. Uh, th- those are strong words. What what did what went wrong with him trying to get his troops to this battlefield? Well, Jackson, Jackson is again notorious for not giving direct or precise orders. On the night of August 7th, when he issues the orders for the Army to march, uh, the the orders are for Richard Yule's division to go first, followed by A.P. Hill's, and then uh, uh, Charles Winder's divisions. He's got three divisions. Uh, And Hill is supposed to wait for Yule's army to pass through Orange Courthouse. Well, immediately after issuing those orders, Jackson says, wait a minute, there's a better road for Yule, and sends orders to Yule and neglects to tell anybody else. And so on A.P. Hill's first day of, of marching with, with Stonewall Jackson, and these two guys are just, you know, you know, you know their personalities going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackson's or Hill's got his men lined up, ready to go, and he's watching these soldiers pass by. He's new to Jackson's army. He doesn't catch on at first that it's not Yule, but actually Winder's division passing him and uprides Stonewall Jackson. And the situation really deteriorates from there. Uh, Hill could have Hill could have cut into Winder or cut behind the wagons, but he chose to wait for the entire division to pass. And of course, uh, Jackson and Hill's again relationship was bad. It it it, it goes downhill from that point on. The uh, during the day, the federal 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 cavalry, which you never hear any good news about them until Brandy Station or Kelly's Ford, uh, George Bayard and and uh, oh, good grief. Um, well, they, Buford's along by this time. Buford, Buford's uh, Buford's been assigned, but he is not. He's not with the army yet. This, yeah, that, that's one okay. of the good things that that uh, that Pope did. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Bayard and uh, uh, oh, I, I have, remember his name right offhand. I, uh, I have his moments. I'm they, looking they, at your order of yeah. battle here at the back. Let's yeah, I'm trying to out. find it too, real quickly. Uh, uh, they, they they spend they spend. The, they've, they spent the previous three weeks in Culpeper, Orange, and Madison County scouting the roads and knowing the roads, mm-hmm. and they've, they've got that wired and and are able to interdict Beverly Robertson's cavalry, Confederate cavalry, not letting them have the intelligence, but keeping Pope and Banks informed about the Confederate movements and the whole time skirmishing into uh, the flanks of Jackson's approaching columns to the point where Jackson, by the time it's all over, is gonna detach two full brigades to protect his line of communication, plus a couple other regiments. So the heat, the heat, mm-hmm. the uh, broken orders, and the federal cavalry uh, just just drive Jackson to, dis- to distraction to the point where he sends a note to Lee that night, and his first line is, I'm not making much progress. Uh, it, it, it's just, you know, we think, uh, we, we measure Civil War generals by how they perform against the enemy, and here's here's a case he's simply trying to get them to march with with uh, again skirmishing from cavalry, but basically unopposed. And and uh, I don't know when, when people criticize McClellan as as we all do on occasion, uh, 
I recall he did get a hundred thousand guys down to the peninsula, and I struggled uh, in our family's heyday to get two <laughs> girls, two dogs into the car, and and. Uh, Mrs. Dr. P into the car for vacation and leave on time, and he gets 100,000 guys there. Jackson can't get you know 20,000 guys on the road uh, without a traffic jam. The the other thing that struck me about the beginning of the campaign is besides effective cavalry, the North also has really effective communications. They've got these signal stations all over the place. They're they're really uh, an efficient organization. They they, they he. Gen- Pope has a great plan. Uh, I like to say he, he he had a great plan, but he had you know C plus B minus kind of leaders working with him. Mm. Uh, Pope had signal stations on the mountains to the west of his line of approach, which was from Sperryville down really to just outside of Orange on Thoroughfare Mountain, and and they they were able to monitor and communicate up and down the chain and kept everyone well informed on exactly what the Confederates were doing. So the uh, you mentioned Thoroughfare Mountain. I guess that gets us back to Cedar Mountain. We've established it's in the center of Virginia. As you're approaching it, you can certainly see it from a distance. Um, it's called Cedar Mountain. So what what is the skiing like? What is the alpine climbing like on Cedar the Al- Mountain? The alpine climate is non-existent. <laughs> uh, it, it is it is a, a single. I think it's called a Mondock, the type of hill. It's just a little mountain out of nowhere. It it is it is tree covered. Uh, with the exception of an open shelf where there was uh, the Reverend Slaughter. It's also known as Slaughter Mountain. Uh, Reverend Slaughter had his had his house up there. Uh, so it's just it's just a high prominent point. Uh, and when Confederates get their artillery up there, I, I argue that it's probably the best ground Confederate artillery in, in the Eastern Theater is going to have uh, during the entire war. I, I, you know, I've been been there and I've been been in Hazel Grove at Chancellorsville and, and that's great. But this is better. So they're they're up on this this shelf uh, partway up the mountain or hill one might call it. Right. Um, the battle's not actually fought on the mountain. It, it is not. It's fought on the valley. It's fought on the valley below. Uh, a lot of people also call it the Battle of uh, Cedar Run or even uh, uh, Battle of Mitchell Station. But Slaughter uh, Cedar Mountain was the one that kind of caught. So, in terms of the fighting, it seems this is one of the rare battles, like Gettysburg, that is really a meeting engagement. Uh, it's it, it's not like either side is dug in waiting for the other to attack. They they both show up on August 9th. Is that accurate? Well, uh, Nathaniel Banks sent uh, Samuel Crawford's brigade down uh, a full day early to find a good position to defend. And uh, they did. That's essentially where where the federal artillery is going to be on that on that ridge and on those tree in those trees. Uh, so they've got a good defensive position if they choose to use it from a, a defensive a defensive uh, spot. Uh, Jackson's coming up a single road uh, that is you know it's a it's a it's a two lane it's a two lane it's a two lane road, and mm-hmm. so he's got his three divisions plus the artillery and and according to uh, Lawrence O'Brien Branch, twelve hundred wagons. Mm. Uh, st- stacked up on that on on that road, so it takes him time to get up to the battlefield and to deploy out. Uh, by time by time Jackson's actually starting deploying his infantry, it's it's four o'clock in the afternoon before they're starting to move into position. So he's just getting organized, and the Union forces. What you know, you, you say that, that Crawford has scouted out a defensive position, but. Well, let me ask this: What what are the orders? Um, is is <laughs> you know, I'm looking at our, our clock. This is this will take. We'll we'll start now. And we'll go into the third break because this, I guess, is the sixty four dollar question. It, it um, is the sixty four dollar question. What uh, is Banks supposed to do here? It depends on who you talk to. According okay. to Nathaniel, according to Nathaniel Banks, his job is to get into position there, and when the opportunity presents itself, to engage the enemy if the opportunity presents itself. According to John Pope, uh, the orders were to establish a, establish a position, engage the skirmishers, and don't bring on an engagement until the entire army's up. Now, the person that gives Banks these orders is a uh, is a cousin of Robert E. Lee, a, a man by the name of Marshall. So, so it gets it gets really interesting, and it also as as we get close to closer and closer to the actual fighting, uh, there's a 
colonel by the name of uh, Benjamin Roberts, who's on Bank of uh, Pope's staff, who is telling Banks that we, mu- we must press them today. We must press them today. So Banks sees an opportunity with Confederates slowly deploying on one road, uh, wide gaps in their line and their forming. And he thinks he's got an opportunity here to amend all the all the disasters in the valley against the infamous, in their case, the infamous Stonewall Jackson. And so from a great defensive position, he initiates an attack late in the afternoon. So the attack is not Pope's whole army, just to get the the, no. the lineup straight as we begin the actual fighting. You've got uh, Banks' corps, one, one third of, of Pope's army. About 9,000 men on a good day. Okay. And Jackson has uh, about the same? Uh, Jackson has about 22,000. Okay. So he's got substantially more. So we know there. how this is going to turn out. If the Union is going to attack with odds like that, no, it's not going to go well for them. Uh, Well, we'll take another short break and come back and talk more about the fighting at Cedar Mountain. That's the subject of the book, The Carnage Was Fearful, The Battle of Cedar Mountain, August 9, 1862, written by our guest tonight, Mike Block. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today. Today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Michael E. Block, author of The Carnage Was Fearful, The Battle of Cedar Mountain, August 9, 1862. Uh, So we've gotten up to the day of battle and uh, the late afternoon of battle. It's been a hot day, taking the Army's hours to get in position. And finally, uh, one of Banks' divisions, Union divisions, goes across the field and, and just launches a straight-up attack on on the Confederates, who, as you, you, you say, Mike, are still deploying. They're not all in a, a perfectly ordered position with reserves in place and so on. Uh, we know, if you're listening to the show, you've read enough Civil War to know that the attacker rarely breaks through a well-defended position in the Civil War. Was there any reason to expect this to be different? No, I think I think Banks's thoughts when he launched his attacks was to was to strike the Confederates before they were firmly established in a in a in a, in a firm defensive position. Uh, unfortunately, for this time of the war, it wasn't it wasn't a very coordinated attack. Uh, two two of Banks's brigades uh, under Christopher Augur's division advanced, but they advanced uh, in a staggered so so there was a gap. And then later in the fight, Samuel Crawford's brigade goes across the wheat field. And finally, uh, uh, George Gordon's brigade goes across uh, what, what's called a brushy field, a field that had been fallow for a number of years. So the, the attacks were completely uncoordinated. 
and there was no there was no readily available uh, reinforcements for banks. Though the full division of, of infantry was three miles away watching the fight. The uh, as we said at the end of the last segment, Pope only has a third of his army here. I thought it was. Uh, Interesting, you describe how Siegel's Corps, he's got another third of the army, is not that far away at Sperryville, and he gets an order to march directly down to Culpeper, and instead of obeying it, he writes back, uh, what route should I take? Yeah, there's only one. There's and, only and, one route, yeah. And there's, there's only one route, and to make matters worse, when he does get to Culpeper in the late afternoon, he... he puts his men into into camp because he didn't follow the orders about having rations prepared for him. So they were they were hungry and had to eat before they could move on. So Siegel's entire corps was out of the fight. Uh, the, the only the only Union help that was available was uh, was Ricketts Division of McDowell's Corps, which was camped about two and a half miles away from the fighting, heard the fighting, saw the fighting, but during this time of the war it was more often than not a commander would not take the initiative to do something for one of losing his job or his career. And so Ricketts men essentially bought a ticket and watched the fight. Wow. So Banks goes in, not Banks is 9,000 men go in alone. It, it's like at, uh, at, at Perryville where, where Gilbert's Same. Corps literally watches uh, McCook's Corps get destroyed next to them. But, hey, we don't have any orders, so we're just not going to participate in this battle. We'll just watch it. Uh, and, and Ricketts is doing the same thing here. In spite of all that, uh, there are moments when it looks like the Confederate line is going to give way. In fact, uh, you write about Stonewall Jackson having having a moment at this battle. He, he does. Uh, again, Augur's division, which had two brigades go forward under Henry Prince and, and, and John Gary, go across and engage against uh, three Confederate brigades under uh, William Tolliver, Jubal Early, and, and eventually Edward Thomas. But from, from that point uh, of the battlefield to the, to, the, uh, to the north, there is a, about a 250-yard gap in the line and only about six pieces of Confederate artillery in place before you get to Garnett's brigade. Uh, and he's hung out there all by himself on a position known at the point. It, it's a great piece of high ground, um, but Garnett's men are busily engaging Gary's men, firing into the Boar Ohio Regiment's flanks. He's having a good old time. But Samuel Crawford's men come across the field, three three regiments, uh, pass by the Confederate left and up two small draws into some woods and, and literally get behind Garnett's brigade. Uh, one Confederate... One Confederate commented that they were mixed up like ducks and chickens. Mm. So it it was uh, it was brutal. It was it was it was bloody. Uh, just like in Ukraine, unfortunately, right now there were atrocities. There's accounts of Confederate soldiers being wounded when they had to retreat, and they were found dead with stab wounds. Uh, mm. So Garnett's men were broken, retreating back, and it's at that point where Jackson's on the. Uh, far right of the Confederate line where he kind of cocks his ear and says, there's some serious work going on over there. And he races, he races to a, an area of the battlefield uh, known as the gate, the Crittenden gate area. The, the battle was mostly fought on the Crittenden farm and this is their farm gate. He, he races to that area, grabs a flag and tries to pull his sword out of the sheath. And unfortunately the sword is rusted in the sheath. And so he has to unattach, attach, unattach the the whole, the whole, the whole assemblage, and raise it above his head, and so he starts yelling to rally, rally men, rally, rally for Winder. Uh, the effect was electric to, to those who were broken. What was more important was Lawrence O'Brien Branch's five regiments of North Carolinians were lined up and ready to go forward, and so by time Crawford's three three regiments had been advancing through the woods and fighting, their, their, their organization was broken and they were fighting in groups of three to five or 10 men advancing, chasing the rebels and all of a sudden five, five regiments come, come marching at him and the battle turns at that point. Hey, you, you mentioned Winder who's commanding Stonewall Jackson's old division. By this time, he's been mortally wounded. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's killed early in the fight. Uh, as, as, as he gets to the field, he uh, he can't decide what he needs to do. He's either he's either helping the artillery site and fire the guns because that's he's an artillerist at heart, 
or he's trying to get his men in position and he's, he's been moving back and forth and at one point he leans he leans to an artillerist to Seattle command and a, and a shell kind of goes through his goes through his left side so you know that doesn't help the Confederate organization certainly it doesn't the, the, their command and control is, is disjointed anyway with with Jackson not giving giving orders directly or explicit orders Charles Wind is the same way uh, William Tolliver who takes over the division has no idea where his reds his brigades are at first and what the orders are even so he's got to figure that out before he can he can actually start leading his men now after the the various disjointed federal charges are finally driven back uh, in order to help them withdraw safely and recover we see one of the wars not very many, uh, at least not many written about, I suppose, uh, cavalry charges. The, uh, it's, the, the it's, it's incredible. Uh, Richard Falls and, and one battalion of, of, the, of the 1st Pennsylvania. Uh, the day has turned for the Federals, and they are, they are pulling back off the field. Banks has committed his only infantry reserve, which was the 10th Maine, to go forward. And, and they, they fight for some time against Branch and other, and other brigades just trying to stem the tide. Banks sees that isn't going well, and he's got 160 men from, the, from uh, Falls' command, and they go, they go charging down the road just trying to, just trying to buy some time, and it's a, it's a classic forlorn hope. Mm. Uh, by the end, end of the day, I think there's maybe like 68 or 70 men that answer the role. Uh, fortunately, all but about 30 or 40 are going to are going to be accounted for. But it's uh, it had to have been a sight to see uh, these guys charging into the setting sun, into the fire because they couldn't see the smoke, but they could see the flashes of the guns mm-hmm. of portions of, of four or five infantry brigades. Yeah, so, so the, the the odds again are, are extraordinary. They're not going to defeat anyone, but they're, as you say, they, they bought time for for other units to get off the field safely. Exactly. So, um, was there any pursuit by the rebels in the aftermath of the battle? There was, as 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 they as the federal brigades and regiments were broken and retreating, um, the bulk of AP Hill's command, which was the last division on the field, he's got seven brigades in the battle. Uh, five of them are actively engaged in the earlier part of the fight, and they chase and they chase the Confederates back across the fields, uh, as the, well the, as the Federals. Confederate, uh, yeah, the Federals across the field, uh, to the point where, at nearly uh, nine o'clock at night, the last two uh, uncommitted brigades of Stonewall Jackson under under uh, Field and Stafford set up. On a, on a piece of high ground along the Culpeper Courthouse, Orange Courthouse Road, and that's where Willie Pegram's guns set up, and and they're they're just hoping to press and and really route the the Federals back into and through Culpeper. Unfortunately, that's where Ricketts' division is, and mm-hmm. as they come up and and Pegram starts to engage his single battery, uh, four four Federal batteries uh, respond. And the and the uh, the fight is really brief, but that that really shuts down that shuts down the battle for the evening. But it was it was a, it was a full moon, and so they they could see what was going on. Uh, but it was just, you know, you you don't hear much about night fighting. No, now you uh, I said at the beginning of the show you been active with the Friends of Cedar Mountain Battlefield. Uh, what is, what's the state of preservation at Cedar Mountain? What is there to see? The, okay, well, the, the the battlefield itself has probably got, oh, good grief, we just got another another 60 acres last year. Mm. Uh, we're, we're the first Pennsylvania charged. Uh, there's probably about 100 and, 170, 180 acres, no, probably more than that, that has been preserved right now. Uh, well, there's other land in easement, at Brandy Station, just on the other side of the county, uh, there's there's well over uh, 1,200 acres. And between the two right now, uh, we are working with the American Battlefield Trust, the Journey Through Hollow Ground, Piedmont Environmental Council, all the friends groups in the area. And we're trying to make this into a state park. Mm. And this is this has been going on for about six years now. And in January, uh, Governor Yunkin uh, proposed $4.93 million for the creation of this state park. Mm. Uh, it made it through both both uh, houses in the Virginia in Virginia state legislative system, uh, but right now the uh, the House and Senate budgets are about three billion dollars off. So we're going through budget reconciliation now, hoping that we survive. 
Mm. Uh, the land, the land looks just like it did back in 1862. The only thing, the only major change, is what looks like modern farms and and a, and a modern highway, uh, Route 15, which is a two-lane highway going through it. So a soldier, a soldier would remember this field as it was. I. I had the good fortune to visit there uh, a couple of years ago while driving okay. up to uh, on the way to do a uh, a battlefield tour the Stephen Ambrose tour and th- th- that was what struck me about it was that there's no visitor center it's not like like Gettysburg it's not full of monuments but there are markers uh, there are good guidebooks and now you've written a, a very good one that is very clear on, on what's going on there and the visitor can can park in the parking lot and and walk the marked trails and really have that sensation of, of what the terrain looked like because it, it it hasn't changed it hasn't, it hasn't changed. changed yeah I mean there, it's not commercially developed there are houses but not a lot and you right. can see the shelf on, on Cedar Mountain and you can see where the gate was the the Crittenden gate and it's it's uh, it, and when I did it I was the only person there uh, there may have been one or two people bird watching uh, exactly yeah, we, get, we get bird bird watchers and dog walkers out there a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, so listeners, if you're in Central Virginia uh, and want to see something that uh, the other people in your Civil War roundtable haven't seen, uh, it, it's definitely worth worth a visit. And I certainly hope the Virginia legislature comes through and makes that a state park because it would be a, a beautiful one. Well, Mike, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you about this. I'm anxious. I'll take your book with me next time I'm traveling there and uh, and walk around the Cedar Mountain Trails. Uh, best of luck going forward, and thanks for being on the show well you're very welcome jerry when you let me know when you come up i'll take you to where some of the hidden monuments are on private property ah that would be great well listeners you you will you you will enjoy this book the carnage was fearful the battle of cedar mountain august 9 1862 and listeners as always thank you for listening to civil war talk radio thank you for embarking on a part of american history this week Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.